All right, well, good morning again. It's good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, you can make your way to 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you are a guest with us, let me say a special welcome to you and just kind of let you know uh, that we're in the midst of a series through four Old Testament books, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. And uh, we're in this series that Lord willing has and will encourage you with the faithfulness of God, that will grow our faith and our trust in God and in His holiness, in His promises that He will not leave you, that He will not forsake you, He will not cast you aside, He will not abandon you, He will not run out on you, He will not fail to provide. He will keep His promises because He is faithful. And friend, if you are in Christ, hear this good news. Jesus is for His people. He will not abandon His people. Ever. He is faithful. Even when we aren't. And certainly there may be consequences for our sin, discipline for our sin, as there was for David. But still, God remains faithful even in the mess even in the heartbreak he's faithful and he meets us in that mess mess that happens because of our own sinfulness that we have caused and that just happens to us Jesus meets us in it and he's faithful to us and that's one of the warm blankets that is all over these four old testament books that God remains faithful and it's in the background of The section of scripture we're going to be in today, looking at three and a half chapters. It's what's kind of going on in the background that God is remaining faithful. Because what's going on specifically where we're at is David's son Absalom has thrown a coup and has taken the throne from David. And ultimately by the end of chapter 18 we will see this coup put down and end in victory for David. But it's a tragic victory because Absalom, his son, dies. It's his third son to die. In fulfillment of Nathan's promise that the sword will not depart from your house as a consequence to his sin with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah. But the passage begins with David fleeing from Jerusalem. And between his flight and between Absalom's defeat, there were two kind of truths that popped off the pages at me. And then at the very end, there was kind of a big takeaway that really stood out to me. And so that's kind of how we're going to frame today. Not as maybe clean and linear as sometimes, but... That's the way it kind of rolled out to me. So in the midst of telling this story, we're going to look at these two truths embedded in the story, and then we'll end with a big takeaway. All right, so that's where we're going. So we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one around you. This is on page 267. 2 Samuel chapter 15, we'll start in verse 13. Last week we did verses 1 through 12 in Absalom's coup, born out of selfish ambition. And today, 
We'll go through chapter 18. So chapter 15, beginning in verse 13. Look at it with me. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The sword shall not depart from your house. Chapter 12. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. Verses 18 through 23 are just all the different kind of peoples that are with him. Skip down to verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And so notice David's trust here in the sovereignty of God. All right? He is abandoned to whatever God wants to do, let him do. Okay? But watch what happens now. This does not mean that he just doesn't do anything. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything. So look at verse 27. So he just said all that. Verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? That means a prophet. Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem. And they remained there. So they stayed in Jerusalem. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, like Jesus, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David... Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom, who had been like one of David's right-hand men. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom... I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Husha, 
David's friend came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. And so back in verse 26, we see David trusting God's sovereignty. Okay? And he he refuses to treat the Ark of the Covenant as a lucky rabbit's foot as Saul had done. Okay, he would not adopt a have ark, have God wrong-headed mentality. And so he says, if there's going to be any possible restoration, it's not going to have to do with Yahweh's furniture, but Yahweh's favor. And so he submits to God's sovereign sway. But what I want you to see is that David's utter trust in God did not mean that he should not do something. And so number one in your notes, write, trust God's sovereignty and take action. Trust God's sovereignty and take action. Okay, do something. Now we want to be careful here because we want to avoid two extremes that we could go to. One extreme is just this false notion of letting go and letting God that you don't do anything. The other extreme is where you live your life like a functional atheist. I mean, yes, intellectually you acknowledge Jesus, but he doesn't make any real difference in your life, any real difference in your decisions, any real difference in your choices, any real difference in what you do and what you don't do. And you still live under the myth that you control everything. And friends, both of those mindsets are false. God is sovereign and he calls us to action. We don't want to avoid those ex- we, we want to avoid those extremes that we talked about. He is sovereign and he calls us to action. And so trust in God's sovereignty should never beget inaction. All right? I'm going to say that again. Trust in God's sovereignty should never beget inaction. If anything, it should drive you to do something. And you don't know how it might go. You don't know what God might do. So throw it out there and see what he does with it. And so like in evangelism, right? We, we know that it is the Lord who gives people faith to believe, not us. Right? So we, we know that. Yet at the same time, it seems pretty clear, the more I share my faith, the more God seems to be giving people faith to believe. And so share your faith. Trust God's sovereignty and take action as it relates to evangelism. And so just specifically between February 20th and April 21st, which is Easter, I want you to invite five people to our Easter gathering. And share the gospel with one of them. And so on February the 20th, we're going to have some training. On a Wednesday night, I'm going to be teaching you how I share my faith. And so be here for that. Get a little bit of training. And it's basically, hey, reading the book of Mark. It's not rocket science. But I'll share that with you. and give you some resources on that. That's on February the 20th, that Wednesday night. Make that a good, like... You all should be here on that Wednesday night. And so trust God's sovereignty and take action as it relates to evangelism, but in a million other ways as well. 
And so trust his sovereignty, lean into his word, ask gospel-centered questions about any decision that you're facing, and then take action. And somebody's like, well, what do you mean gospel-centered questions? Well, when you're thinking about a, a business decision, when you're thinking about a job change, when you're thinking about a dating relationship, when you're thinking about trying out for a sport or a club or whatever, ask yourself questions like, how will this affect my relationship with Christ? What does this do to my witness? Will this give me more opportunity to live on mission? Will this take me away from being able to gather with the body? Ask questions like that, not just, is it more money? Is it in a better location? Is it like, ask gospel-centered questions as well. And so ask questions, obey his word, trust his sovereignty, and take action. And so that's what David does. He knows God has promised him the kingdom. He also knows that he sinned horribly. And he's a little worried that maybe he's blown it all. Maybe God is not going to keep his word. So he's, I mean, he's a sinner like we are, prone to doubt. And so there's a little bit of doubt in him. But nevertheless, at the same time, he knows that he is God's anointed. And this is the kingdom that God has given to him, and so he's going to fight for it while submitted to God's sovereign will. And so he uses his brain, and he makes some crafty moves. He needed Zadok and Abiathar and their sons to be back in the city to funnel critical intel to him. And so he sent them back. When he heard that Ahithophel had betrayed him, he did what we can all do. He prayed. He prayed that God would turn to foolishness Ahithophel's counsel. And then thirdly, he got Husha, or Hushiah, the archite, his most trusted advisor, to be like 007, to be a double agent. Undercover with Absalom, but secretly working for David, funneling information to Zadok and Abiathar, who in turn funnel it to David. And so David trusted God's sovereignty. He was totally submitted to it. I mean, verse 25 again, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. But that doesn't mean that he should be passive. And so friends, let's not live like functional atheists. And let's not live like functional fatalists. Let's trust God's sovereignty and take action. All right? Let's keep going. Let's get down to chapter 16, verse 15. Chapter 16, verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with them, And when Hushiah the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushiah said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushiah, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Because he knows he's close with David. And Hushiah said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, 
whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is fulfillment of chapter 12, verse 11, also a clear claim at the throne. He's on the rooftop where this all began with Bathsheba in the first place. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. Like that's how they held it. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. All right, because remember, he's fleeing. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And so Ahithophel is saying, listen, he's fleeing, he's tired, he's worn out, he's discouraged, and he's slowed down by children in all the household. Let me go right now, give me 12,000 men, and we will go attack him right now and just kill him. And then all the people can come back, they will serve you, they will be your people. And this was probably the right plan to happen from Absalom's perspective. But remember 007 Hushai? Well, Absalom decides to ask his thoughts. And so verse 5. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. All right, so he explained Ahithophel's plan to Hushai. And so he's asking Hushai, hey, here's what Ahithophel has spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall, dra- we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And so Hushai knows that, hey, if they follow Ahithophel's plan, it's going to go bad for David. David will be defeated. 
And so 007 Hushiah strokes Absalom's ego and sells him on a plan that will buy David time to regroup, choose his own place to fight with a trained force. And so verse 14, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushiah the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Did you see that? What was just said? For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Friends, this is the explanation of this whole story. Like it's all happening so naturally, so humanly, so freely. People making choices, people making decisions. But God had ordained it to happen this way. And that may raise some questions as it relates to divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But what I want you to remember this morning is this. God's sovereignty is not meant to give you philosophical problems, but spiritual comfort. God's sovereignty is not meant to give you philosophical problems, but spiritual comfort. And the primary characteristic of God's sovereign actions here is its hiddenness, its secrecy, its silence, right? I mean, there are no trumpets sounding here. There's no turmoil. There's no billboards. There's no bumper stickers. There's no tweets about it. There's no Facebook posts about it. Just this quiet little aside in the midst of the narrative that just says the plot against God's king is not going to work. Why? Because God's ordained it so. Friends, more, more often than not, this is the manner of God's work. His scepter is so often unseen. His sovereignty is hidden behind conversations and decisions and activities and crisis of our lives. We see only the grocery lines and the diaper changes and the school assignments. But through and over and behind it all, God is ruling. He is not absent, but neither is He obvious. But He's still there, working His goodwill. And so number two in your notes, praise God for His silent sovereignty. Praise God for His silent sovereignty. And friends, don't miss God's kindly rule in your life by looking for the extraordinary. He works primarily in the ordinary means of life. That's how He primarily, just the day by day, what's going on, it looks all natural, it looks all human, just free choices. But behind it all, God's working for the good of His people, carrying out His sovereign plan. And so even as we look around at the world around us and we think, good grief, this world is spinning out of control. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not spinning out of control. God is in control. And he can't be stopped. And he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Not even the gates of hell 
can hold back the advance of his gospel and the spread of Christ's church. And God's playing a long game, right? We're reading about something 3,000 years ago that we're still a part of. He's playing the long game and we're just trapped in our little slice of life 80 years, 90 years, 100 years max, we can see, and yet we think we should tell God how it should be, and we can only see this, and he's playing the long game. And he's playing that long game for the ultimate good of the world globally, but also for each of you personally. And so I say again, friends, don't miss God's kindly rule in your life by looking for the extraordinary. See it in the midst of the ordinary. The silent, sovereign, kind hand of God is at work in your life even if you don't realize it. And so take courage in that this morning and praise God for His silent sovereignty. And so Absalom decides to follow Hushaya's advice. And so, 17, 15, chapter 17, verse 15, Hushaya sends word to David about Absalom's plan. And so David starts gathering for war. So look down at chapter 18, verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set, out, set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishiah, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittiah, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city." king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishiah and Ittiah, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. I mean, Absalom was a total tool. But he still loves him. He's his son. He still loves him. So the army went out into the field against Israel. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. He's fleeing is what's happening. Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Now back in chapter 14 verse 26 it talks about how amazing his hair was. So my wife's been giving me all kinds of grief over the last several months because of talking about Clemson's quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, so much. She says he's my man crush, right? He's not my man crush. 
He's just from my home high school, so I like him a lot. I've been telling Brad Shanks about him for years. And now this year I'm getting to see, I told you so. And Brad's like, Can, he is your man crush. Like he is fully convinced that Sarah's right. Anyhow, if you know who I'm talking about, he's got those, that flowing blonde hair, right? Well, chapter 14, verse 26, describes Absalom that way. It actually talks about how he cuts his hair once a year and it weighs like tons, like several pounds. So he has this thick hair. He's riding on his mule. It's kind of comical. And he gets caught by the mule, you know, his hair. The mule walks out from under him and he's sitting there dangling by his hair. This is the word of God. So verse 10, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. Apparently belts were nicer than this one. (laughs) But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishiah and Ittiah, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And then there's a story about racing to tell David the news. But skip down to verse 31 when the Cushite arrives with the news. And behold, the Cushite came... And the Cushite, Cushite, this is Ethiopia, this is an Ethiopian man, said, Good news for my Lord, the King. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those, of all who rose up against you. The King said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord, the King, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went into the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And so thus ends the tragic story of Absalom. A story that began with him rebelling against his father and his king, trying to set up his own kingdom. But here's part of the big takeaway that stood out to me this week. We may decry Absalom for doing this, but friend, understand, and this is part of number three, we are Absalom. I am Absalom. You are Absalom. We have rebelled against a God and Father more pure and holy than David. We've stolen His kingdom for ourselves, trying to make it all about us. And we've publicly humiliated Him on the rooftops of our lives. 
We are on Absalom. Understand that. I mean, one of the simplest definitions of sin is living as your own king. What I think is how it is. What I want is how it's going to be. I define right and wrong, not somebody else. And so I don't bow my will and my thoughts to the Word of God. No, I bow the Word of God to my will, to my thoughts, to my desires, to my wants, to my personal benefits, to my political persuasions. I make the Word fit that. I don't submit to it. Is that not what we do a lot of times? If we could be honest. And so understand, we are Absalom. And therefore, we deserve the shameful fate of Absalom. And yet God doesn't dole out what we deserve. Rather, look at verse 33 again. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Friends, do you see the echoes of the gospel here? We are Absalom, and Jesus is the son of David. And what David could not do for Absalom, God has accomplished for us through the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross to die in our place, in our stead, instead, in our stead for our sins, out of his great love that cries alongside David, Oh, my son, my son. My daughter, my child, do you see how much I love you? Do you see what I've done for you? You have rebelled. You have run off. You have started your, tried to live your own kingdom in Mount Aku, but I love you. Romans 5 puts it like this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, rebelling, starting our own kingdom, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so the complete big takeaway, all right, number three in your notes, is this. Understand that we are Absalom and that Jesus has come to save us. Understand that we are Absalom and that Jesus has come to save us. And this good news should... Give our hearts the capacity to hope 
in the midst of painful circumstances, even if we, like David, caused those circumstances to begin with. You see, as J.D. Greer writes, God was not finished with David. The promise of an eternal kingdom had never ceased being true. And despite his many failings, despite tragedy on tragedy, God would use David to raise up the greatest king and savior Israel and all the world would ever know. The consequences of David's sin ran deep, but the plans and promises of God ran deeper. And dear friend, God is not finished with you either. He is not finished with you. And some of us in here may be suffering from the direct consequences of sin. A broken marriage, an estranged son or daughter, a body damaged by drug use. Sin's effects are strong in our lives, but the grace of God is stronger. And while God may not remove the consequences, as He didn't remove them in David's life, Still, our sin, if we are in Christ, is not the final word about us. So to the thief, to the abuser, to the divorcee, to the adulterer, to the selfishly ambitious, to the alcoholic, God says, 1 Corinthians 6, and some of you used to be like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so our past sins may plague us, but in Christ they have no more power to define us. You are a new creation if you are in Christ. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. And so now what do you do? Move forward. Trusting God's sovereignty while taking action. Praising Him for how He's silently and secretly working in our lives. And understanding that, yes, we are Absalom. Being truthful about ourselves. We are rebels. But Jesus came to save us. And God calls to us, Oh, my son, my daughter, my child, come home. Oh, sinner, come home. And so... Come home. To those of you who've never trusted in Christ, He's calling to you to come home, to place your faith and your hope and your trust in Him and receive His forgiveness, be adopted into His family, be given eternal life. And to those of you who've maybe wandered away from God a little bit, He's calling, come home. Come home. And He calls us to come home not after we get our lives together, but just as we are. And He'll start putting them together. For great is His faithfulness. Let's pray. Well, we thank You that You are kind. You are gracious and merciful. And we are not... In and of ourselves, we run from you. We think we're smarter than you. We think we know better than you. And we try to fill our lives with a thousand different God replacements, 
all of which buckle underneath our expectations and do not meet our satisfaction. They do not give us what we are looking for. Father, help us to come to ourselves like the prodigal son did and open our eyes and see that we have a father who will take us home, who will take us back, who will kill the fatted calf, run out to meet us as we just come broken. Father, help us to acknowledge your work in our lives and not become so smitten with ourselves or the Hushayas of our life who we think are the architects of your plan. I know you are. And so let our praise be to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.